Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Gant, as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which good news, that book is available right now as an audiobook, as a paperback, but the ebook, the ebook is free, yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Don't worry about me. I'll get your money when you come back for Banneker Bones 2 and 3. But you can get that first book for free right now under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. I've written novels for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now, A Zombie Story, and many others. For more information about all of that, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, publicists, also authors, book people, the world's best people. Head to middlegradeninja.com. There you can also read a seven-question interview with tonight's guest, Patricia Nelson. Patricia, I'm so thrilled that you've uh, been able to make time for us. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So esteemed audience knows that um, I never make a guest sit through me fumbling over their background or their book. How painful. Uh, for you to sit there as I get it wrong. <laughs> so probably the best place to start is if you would give uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Sure. So I'm Patricia Nelson. I'm an agent with Marshall Lyon Literary Agency. We are based out of San Diego, California, and I have been there since 2014. So uh, eight years now, which in publishing is like mid-career, which is kind of crazy. Um, before I was in publishing, I was a PhD student in English. I thought I wanted to become an English professor, um, but then I realized that I would rather be part of making books than sitting around and deconstructing books. So I fled academia and moved into publishing. Um, I represent middle grade YA and adult fiction, and then a smattering of other things if my existing clients want to do it. But in terms of what I'm looking for for new clients, um, middle grade and YA of all genres. And then in adult, I mostly do women's fiction and romance. Gotcha. Ah, so I've got all kinds of, of questions for you. I've got literally a page of uh, five pages of questions. We're not going to get to them all. <laughs> but uh, I, I was curious um, that you uh, spent time, you were an instructor of literature and writing. Um, so it seems like that would have been a, eventually a tenure track to, to stay there, right? Well, at the that was while I was in graduate school. So I was part of the meat grinder of underpaid graduate student labor. Um, and I was teaching freshman composition, and then they moved me into honors freshman composition. So the trajectory that I would have been on if I had stayed would be finish up the PhD and then look for a, a teaching position, hopefully tenure track, although these days mostly everything is a lecturer, uh, which is part of, part of why I left. Although the bigger reason that I left is that publishing was just always my dream job. Um, it's always what I envisioned myself doing. I was a big reader as a kid. Uh, and the only reason that I didn't go for it at first is I'm from the Midwest and New York just seemed really scary. <laughs> like when I graduated college and I thought about going into publishing and the fact that I would have to move to New York, I just wasn't ready. Um, so I fled to grad school instead. But I do think I got a lot out of the teaching that I did. I did that for four years. Um, and I think I just learned a lot about how to give feedback, how to give constructive feedback specifically, and also um, for 
the two years that I taught in the USC honors program, it was a very interesting format where they were going for kind of like a Socratic kind of thing. So we had one-on-one -on -one meetings with the students once a month, each student. And we just kind of brainstormed and talked about like ideas and, and building up whatever they were thinking about from the very beginning, which is a lot like what I do as an agent with existing clients as we think about what they want to develop next. Gotcha. So uh, those grad students who, who got their heart broken, who are listening to this, like, well, okay, but that was terrible for me. But that was the foundation upon <laughs> which many writers have, have, have received an extraordinary uh, feedback that did not bring their heart quite as, quite as much. <laughs> I'm very nice. I give, I, I'm, I think I've always been pretty nice in my feedback, um, but I am extremely editorial with my clients. And I think that part of that comes from from that experience teaching. So from there, you uh, become an intern with the Angela Rinaldi Literary Agency. Yeah, that was a fascinating experience. So basically, I decided that, you know, publishing had always been my dream. Being an academic was not my dream. And so I was finally ready to buck up and move to New York. By this point, I was in my mid-20s. And um, I didn't want to move without having a little bit of experience, like resume in publishing under my belt. So basically, I just cold emailed every agency that was either based in Southern California or said that they had remote internships and were somewhere else. Um, and most of them ignored me, which is what happens when you send a bunch of cold emails. Um, but Angela, who is kind of like a one woman shop, um, she was looking for someone to basically sift through her queries. Um, and she was also in LA. I was in LA at the time in Silver Lake and she was in Culver City. So she's about a half an hour from me. So I would just go over to her house and talk to her about her publishing experience and read her queries. And then we would talk about like which ones were workable and which ones not so much. And I found a couple things even like during that internship that she ended up signing and selling, which even though I wasn't the one selling them, it was a really great rush. Um, so I did that for about four months, six months, four months, six months, something like that. Um, which for anyone listening who's looking to get into publishing, my advice when I do informational interviews with people is you should never be doing an unpaid internship for more than six months. At that point, it's just exploitation. Like you've probably learned all that you can and then they need to start paying you. Um, so she wasn't in a position where she was looking to start paying someone. Um, so I, when I had originally done my cold emails, the other person who had responded to me was Elise Capron at the Sandra Dykstra Agency in San Diego. And she had said, you know, we're not looking for any interns right now, but if you're ever down in San Diego, which is about two and a half hour drive from LA, if you're ever down in San Diego, let me know. We can go get a drink and talk about publishing. Your resume is interesting. Like, I would love to chat with you. And so when I decided that it was time to move on from my internship and look for something else, I happened to find a reason to be in San Diego. And I emailed Elise and let her know, like, hey, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods. Is that offer to me just for an informational interview still open. And she was so generous, um, just like one of the kindest people. I don't know if you've interviewed her. She doesn't do a lot of children, so she might not have crossed your path. 
Um, uh, it, but I'd love to. Yeah, she's, she's great. She's come on. So, so she, um, she and I met and we just talked about publishing and she told me that um, she knew of another agency also based in San Diego, the Marshall Lyon Agency, where Kevin Lyon, one of the owners, was about to lose her assistant and was looking for a new one or was going to look for a new one, but was worried about posting the job listing because she knew if she posted it, she would get a huge flood. So Elise said, like, let me just connect you with Kevin and see if you guys click um, to be an in-office assistant. And we, we met, like, I lucked out completely. The timing is just unbelievably fortunate. And whenever people ask me, you know, how do I mimic your path to publishing? I always say, you, you can't because I just like tripped and fell into it, you know? Um, I mean, I, I made the effort, but like, it was just sheer luck that there are, are, I think maybe four paid assistant positions in Southern California. And I happened to end up with one before the job was even posted. Um, so for a while, for about a year and a half, I commuted three days a week from LA to San Diego. Again, two and a half hours each way. Um, cause I didn't want to move down to San Diego without knowing if it was going to work out. So I thought like, it's three days a week, I'll just give it a shot. And I wasn't quite ready to give up on LA yet. And then after, you know, a year, year and a half, it became very clear that this was definitely what I wanted to do. It was going to work out with Marshall Lyon and I just needed to buck up and get myself down to San Diego. And that was in 2015 that I moved down here. Um, and that's where I still am. Just out of curiosity, two and a half hours each way, I'm assuming you're the one doing the driving. Yeah. So audiobooks maybe, but she can't be using that time to go through submissions or anything. No, like so many audiobooks. I That was the only point in my life when I was like a really high volume audiobook listener. Usually I prefer to read an actual book because I can read faster than I can listen. I can't listen to the audiobook speed sped up. Um, it just goes in one ear and out the other. But yeah, when I was doing that, I was listening to a lot of them, which was actually great for market research at the beginning of being an agent. Like I was just listening to a lot of recently published stuff in the genres I wanted to represent. Um, it would have been ideal. There is a train that goes from LA to San Diego, but it's set up for commuters the other way. So it all of the times for the train go from San Diego to LA in the morning and then LA to San Diego in the evening. Um, and I was, I was a backwards commuter, so that didn't work. Well, so six months you're, you're there at uh, Marshall Lyons Literary, and then they're like, well, let's just go ahead and promote you to an agent, right? Mm -hmm. so yeah. Saying, so I'm incredibly lucky, and yet there's a story there of you networking, of you being tenacious. Obviously, you were a good assistant, or they wouldn't have recommended uh, you to Marshall Lyons. And, and then six months in, they could have probably gotten a lot more use out of you as an, as an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kept assisting um, because the thing that I'm sure you've heard from other agents who you've talked to is since agenting is a commission only, everybody has to have a, pretty much a second job when they, when the, while they're starting to build their list. And what I was told when I first started taking on clients is that the expectation is that it will be five years before you can make a like livable income as a full-time agent. 
So pretty much everybody has a second job. And I was just lucky enough that my other job was just being an assistant. So I stayed the assistant in the office. And then in my own time, um, like evenings, weekends, I went through my own slush and started developing my own clients, um, which was also just a very, a very fortunate position to be in. And yes, I was very fortunate to be promoted that fast. Um, I think I do have a skill set that's really well suited to agenting. So I took to it very quickly, but something about the West Coast agencies and specifically Marshall Lyon, um, it's a, my experience and what I'm here, what I hear from other agents is it's a lot easier to advance in a lot of the New York agencies. You have to be an assistant for a year or, you know, they have like very, very firm benchmark progress. And uh, with Kevin, my boss, Kevin Lyon at six months, she was just like, you, you are doing really well here. You know, do you want to take on your first client? Um, the first client I took on was something that I had found in her query slush pile and really loved. And it wasn't for her, but she thought like, you know, I think you're ready. And if you want this, you can take this on. Um, but I think that if I had been at, at some other agencies that I've heard of, I wouldn't have been allowed to advance that fast. And I think that I would have gotten frustrated. Um, I was really glad that I could just go as fast as I could go when I was trying to build the, the client list and the business at the beginning. And there's just not as many uh, competing book people on the West Coast as there are on the East Coast? Or? I think that's part of it. But I also just think that it's like a different ethos, you know, like a lot of the um, a lot of the New York agencies have been around for 50 years. You know, they're they're very set in their ways. Um, and out here, I think probably the oldest specifically West Coast agency is the Dykstra Agency. And I'm not sure exactly how old they are, but they certainly haven't been around more than, you know, like 20, 25 years, I would guess. Um, so things are just a little less calcified on this coast, is my sense. Gotcha. And if uh, New York would listen to the show and take my advice and branch out into like I don't know, Indiana would be wonderful or uh, anywhere in the Midwest where the rents are cheaper and yep. you can get a far more diverse staff, diverse in every kind of way, um, age-wise, income-wise, experience-wise, background-wise, all kinds of folks could come in that have experiences that aren't identical to all the other folks that are maybe in the other houses. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, it's. I think especially now that they've all figured out, all the publishers have figured out how to do full-time remote during COVID, I just don't understand why they can't do what you're proposing and, you know, take on people who aren't localized to New York. There are some editors who are in with the big New York houses who are not in New York, but it seems to me like those are more senior editors who have like proven that they don't have to be in the office. Whereas, as you say, if they would open that up to more entry level positions, it would open those jobs up to a lot of different people who, you know, just like I felt when I was graduating college, like are not ready or don't have the money to just move to New York and try to cross your fingers that someone in a publishing house hires you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we, we are 100% agreement. Did you hear this, New York? We worked that out for you. It's, it's solved. <laughs> We've solved publishing, and we're only 15 minutes in, so where will we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> the economy. Let's work this out. <laughs> so um, you said about five years before you start making your income as a literary agent. You start in 2014. As we record this, it's 2022. How'd you do? Was five years about it? Five years was about it. That was actually a pretty spot on estimate. Um, that was about when I, you know, I had sold enough that I had things that had earned out and were bringing in steady royalties. And I had clients who had made foreign sales and that money was coming in, in addition to the new things that I was selling. Um, so yeah, it seemed like a long time when I first heard that, but it was right, five years. So I mean, I'm assuming during that time, you're gathering your clients, you're building your list, mm -hmm. you're making sales that now mm -hmm. are bringing in royalties that are part of your overall compensation. Yep, exactly. So I was, I was signing all the way through that time um, and selling all the way through that time. But it just takes a while to, to build up, um, which is the same thing I tell my clients who are wishing they could quit their day job after they get their first book deal. Um, I often say like, I mean, I mean, I can tell you how to live your life. That's not my job, but I usually recommend that the time to quit your, your day job as an author is after you're making the big chunk of your money on royalties, because that's the steady income in publishing. Um, those advances, it's really hard to be an author who's living just off of advances or an agent who's living just off of advances because there's a lot of pressure to sell the next thing, sell the next thing, or there's not going to be more money coming in. Whereas once it's earned out and you're getting that every six month royalty check, which I mean, that's not that often, could be more often. Um, but it, it is just um, more sustainable when the royalty money is flowing. Well, it seems to me we've nearly fixed publishing. This will do it. Um, if they're going to break up the advances into four or five chunks now, break up those royalties. What's wrong with quarterly? What's wrong with monthly? <laughs> Why not? I mean, the answer to that is paperwork. So much paperwork and they like are so behind on the paperwork they have already, but they could hire more people, you know. Especially if they're in the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. Come out here and pay uh, pay Indianapolis rents. You won't believe how much space you can get for what you're paying there. And in, in, in I mean, I'm from Michigan, so I will believe it. I definitely have my, those high school friends who are still in Michigan, and I like look at the houses they've been able to buy. Oh, you know, the amount you paid for that house would buy a one bedroom in San Diego. Why have I made these choices? Well, they could revitalize Detroit. Was all those all that beautiful property available, dirt cheap and sustainable living? It's happening, actually. I mean, like mostly in the urban core, but there are some really cool up and coming parts of Detroit. Recommend. All right, world peace is next. We're gonna knock this out. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, uh, five years, and then you're you're making enough royalties that you're comfortable. When do you feel uh, that? That, that pressure, not that the pressure is off, but that, oh, I really will be a literary agent going forward. I am going to make my living this way. I don't need to worry about contacting my academia friends to make sure there's still a spot. I mean, I think that 
that was that was earlier than I was even making a sustainable living. Like once I started making sales, I felt like I was I was on the right track. And it really is just such a special job. Like I'm very much a um, you know, when I was a teenager, I would say like, I don't want to be anyone's boss and I don't want anyone to be the boss of me. Like I'm, I'm very much that personality and there are not a ton of grown up jobs that you can have where you can have that attitude. Um, but agent Ching is one of them. Like you are, you know, you're picking the people that you want to work with. You're picking the hours that you want to work. You, um, have more of a collaborative relationship. Like, I don't feel like, I'm certainly not my client's boss and I don't feel like they're my boss either. We are working together towards a collective goal um, and we chose each other and I really love that. And, you know, it, it just, I think once I became an agent and got like a taste of the fact that, okay, maybe I can make this work, um, I really just wanted it. Like I, I wanted to stay doing it. I think that um, for me personally, a, another job would just be a letdown after this. This definitely is my dream job. And I was lucky enough that, you know, my bosses at Marshall Lion are great models of like sustainable long careers as an agent. And there's, um, there are quite a few other agents here in San Diego. There's a little cluster of agencies. So there are, there are a few agents whose names you would know who are about five years ahead of me in terms of career. And that was really heartening um, when I was starting because I was like two years in and they were seven years in. And that felt like I could look at them and think like, okay, if I can be there in five more years, I can keep doing this. And then that, it's like having a, an older sibling, right? Like they, they just keep going further and, and I would keep watching them and spending time with them and being like, all right, what, what they're doing seems great. And I, and I think I can figure out how to follow along the path of, of what I'm seeing them lay out. Did you ever want to be an author yourself? Uh, I mean, I was shaking my head when I was like in eighth grade, I wrote some truly unfortunate epic fantasy novels with you know, dragons and unicorns. Um, but I was never very good. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't very good. And I know nobody ever starts out being good. Um, as an author, you have to learn it. But I didn't love the writing process enough that I wanted to stick with it. Like I, I, I kind of had set my sights on other things by high school. Gotcha. So you were just a, a big reader who wanted to be part of the book world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always knew that I wanted to do something with books. Um, and my in high school, I thought I wanted to be an editor. That's, you know, I, I thought, I guess I thought editing was like the job if you want to work in publishing. Because as someone in growing up in Michigan, I didn't know anyone who worked in publishing. I didn't know the like wide range. I didn't know what an agent was. I didn't know that like, you know, there are production managers and publicists and all these things in a publishing house. All I really knew was editors because that's what people were in rom-coms. 
So I thought that looked nice. Maybe I'll be that. Um, and then, you know, I went to grad school in English because um, at the time when I was not ready to move to New York, I was like, well, at least this way I'll, I'll still get to spend all my time with books. Um, Cause I, yeah, I was, I was the kid who like my parents took me to the library once a week and I would check out as many books as they would let you check out in one library card and just come home with a whole stack and then read through them and be done with them like a couple days before it was library day and then sort of sit there antsily waiting. Um, so that, that was always my favorite thing was reading as I was growing up. It's a good skill to have as a literary agent, as I understand it. You have to do a fair yeah. amount of it. Yes. Uh, well, that brings us to uh, 2015, April 16th, 2015. You face the seven questions. Uh, available now, esteemed audience at Middle Grade Ninja. As soon as this uh, conversation is over, by God, you can go and you can read them. I'll link to them in the show notes. But in 2015, you said your three favorite books uh, were Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, Sarah Zar's What We Lost, and Kazu Ishiguro's Never Let Me, Never Let Me Go. Uh, and then also Kate DiCamillo's Flora and Ulysses, Jandy Nelson's I'll Give You the Sun, and Bennett Madison's September Girls. So I think six is a, is a fair cheat. People stress so much about that question. I started just openly saying, please feel free to cheat. I, I don't mean to cause you undue stress, but that's six books. Is that still fairly representative of your taste, or are there more books that should be on that list now? I mean, I still love all those books. Um, and actually... It's so, it's so funny to hear what I was saying then. Um, I just last weekend read Sarah Zar's new book. She's writing middle grade now. Um, she just came out with a book, a song called Home this spring. And I still love Sarah Zar. Just everything Sarah Zar writes, I'm there for it. I've read every single one of her books. Um, some of those people, I would love for them to write another book. Like Jandy Nelson hasn't published anything since I'll Give You the Sun. Um, but I'll be there when she does. But I think, I mean, still love all of that. And I love a lot of other things now too. Like I have been reading a lot of fantasy and a lot of mystery since the pandemic. Um, I think both feel kind of escapist. Although I do also like like really dark, twisted, weird fantasy. Um, I read over New Year's, I read Middle Game by Sean and McGuire, which is an adult fantasy loved it. I thought it was amazing. I'm not sure it would be something that I would represent as an agent because it is such complex adult fantasy and that's kind of outside of my wheelhouse, but I loved reading it. Um, on the fantasy side, I also really loved Alana K. Arnold's Damsel, which is like an incredibly weird, twisted fairy tale retelling. Um, that came out from Balzer and Bray last year. Yeah. Uh, that one two months ago? Uh, yeah. Blew my mind. It was amazing. Sorry. I know. It's really surprising, right? Like, I just kept reading it. Like, I can't believe this got published. This is so out there. Um, but I, I thought it was brilliant. Um, and in general, I think Alana K. Arnold's work is really brilliant. I'm always impressed with what she's doing. Um, on the very much agreed. Yeah. On the mystery side... Last month I read Maureen Johnson's Truly Devious trilogy. Um, do you know those? I know Maureen Johnson. I haven't read the trilogy yet. Oh, they're so good. They're basically two interwoven um, 
murder mysteries set at this boarding school. One is a cold case that took place in 1930, like a kidnapping and then a murder. And then a teen sleuth comes to the boarding school set on solving the unsolved cold case. And then students start getting murdered all over again. And so, you know, she's simultaneously solving the old murder and the new, uh, the new murders. And it's fascinating because that trilogy, you know, usually murder mysteries are one book. She has made it three. So uh, she stretches both mysteries out over all three books, which I was a little weary of when I picked them up, but I had heard so many people recommend them. I wanted to try it and she makes it work. Um, I think it would be terrifying as an author to have to know all the clues for three books when you publish the first one, but she pulled it off. It was very satisfying. Well, it probably made more so if you can come along after they're all published and binge them as opposed to get to the end of the first yeah. one and have to wait and remember all the clues for whenever the next one comes out. I was so mad. I only bought the first one because I wasn't sure I would like them. And then I I used the evil Amazon because I wanted the second one so fast and they <laughs> deliver it fastest. And I was still mad that I had to wait the 24 hours to get book two. I just bought book two and three at once and then ran through them. Oh, and I should uh, shamelessly plug for esteemed audience to go check the back catalog. I have a wonderful conversation waiting for you both with Alana K. Arnold and Shauna McGuire. So they're, they're both excellent. Neither of them uh, mentioned you as their agent, which leads me to believe you read things written by people you don't represent and who are you're not uh, going to be representing. Yeah, no, I read a lot. Um, I know that some people in publishing don't have time and I totally get it, especially like people with young kids. I don't have kids, so I have a lot more time than people who've been trying to parent during a pandemic. Um, but yeah, I, I read a lot. And I think that it helps me stay excited because I think um, I've certainly, I've signed a lot of authors from the query slush and I, I love being open to queries and being available for that. But I think it, you can get really jaded if all you're reading as an agent is queries and submissions. Um, I think for me, I need to be reading published books that, that blow my mind, like Middle Game or like Damsel, so that I can, I can just think like, authors can do this. Like, I want to find an author who, who is like writing as outside the box or as, as creative or is such an amazing world building. Um, and then that gets me excited to dig back in and, and find new talent. I imagine there's some version of that that's the equivalent of if a writer is teaching lots of fiction workshops for up-and-coming writers, and they're looking around like, oh, I must be an amazing writer. Look how much better I am than all this stuff I'm reading. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so what does your reading day look like between things you have to read for clients? I'm assuming you're going to the query pool at least once a week. Yes, I I am... Knock on wood. I'm really good with queries right now. Um, I usually reply to them within like a couple days. So the first thing that I do in the morning on a weekday is I get my coffee made and then I sit down with the queries that came in the previous day. Um, and 
everything that's a pass, I try to pass immediately because I mean, I wouldn't want to be left hanging to get my hopes up. So I assume authors don't want to either. Um, some things I know automatically I want and I request, and then I have a maybe pile. So, um, queries that like look promising, but it's not immediately, yes, this is for me. I just flag them to look at in a bigger batch later, which often happens like on a Friday morning or something. Um, so when somebody's listening to this and they think, well, usually it's within 24 hours and I haven't heard back with a rejection, I'm maybe in the maybe pile. Is that a fair assumption? Possibly? That's a fair assumption. I mean, give me 48. Like if it, it, it might just be a day behind, but yeah, if it's like at least right now in the year 2022, if you're listening to this later, who knows where I'll be. But uh, if you're listening to this now, yeah, if it's been like three or four days, and you haven't heard from me, you're probably in the maybe pile waiting to, to um, be read more carefully. Um, and then where I'm really behind though, and I'm sorry to anyone listening to this, is submissions. Um, because that requires a more sustained attention and I have a backlog right now. So I really, like usually in my regular day, I finish my query review and my coffee, and then I sit down on, at email. And then I'm usually doing email until business hours end in New York. Um, and then that's still afternoon for me because I'm on the West Coast. So then I try to save my afternoons for more sustained client work that needs um, closer attention. So I usually do editing in the afternoons, pitch letters, submission lists. Um, if I have clients who send like, like to my clients, I am a notoriously long emailer. So I'll have clients who will send me like extensive amounts of questions on email. If they're more of an email person than a phone person. And I will send voluminous emails back. I usually write those like very long emails in the afternoon. Um, so that's also the time I would spend on submissions if I didn't have client things to do. This year, I just, my clients have been very productive with a lot of brilliant things. So I have not been digging into that submission folder post 2 p.m., um, which means that I'm really backed up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to anyone who's listening. I'm so sorry. I, you will hear from me. I do reply to everyone. Um, but it's, I mean, I, I, I'm very sympathetic with agents who, who are very behind on queries because the thing about all of this is once you get in the hole, it's way harder to dig out. Like the reason I'm so on top of queries is because I do it every day, but I have in the past gotten mostly before I got on query manager, which I use now instead of the email and makes it go much faster. I have gotten behind on queries. And like, once you get behind on this stuff, it's just much more daunting to dig out of the pile. Well, all those people who are in submission purgatory, uh, shall we say, uh, waiting, <laughs> waiting uh, for, for, for those of you listening to us, uh, Patricia has just made a, a face that perhaps purgatory is too harsh a term. <laughs> no, it's fair. It's totally yeah. fair. But for those waiting in submissions, you will appreciate the attention to detail that the, the prioritizing of your clients is going to come first when they are your client. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's really how I think about it is that the people who I have signed, I've made a commitment to them and, and I need to, you know, I, I need to do a 
good job by my existing people before I start looking for new business, which essentially is what going through queries and submissions is. Um, and then I'm, this is a sense pandemic lifestyle choice, but I sense the pandemic and trying really hard not to work on weekends. I used to work on weekends and I got some submission stuff done then in the past, but now I have a pretty strict, like I sign off on Friday night and then see you Monday morning. And that is what has allowed me to read for fun. So I usually then like, depending on what else I have going on, I usually read one book a weekend, which allows me to keep, keep pretty well up with things that I'm not directly working on. Are you, um, you binge watching television, playing video games, other things? I'm not a video game person. Um, I just, I wasn't as a kid. And then I feel like it's really hard to figure out video games as an adult. Like you're better off. It's a, it's a crippling sickness. <laughs> <laughs> I do watch TV though. Um, but I try not to binge watch. I start to feel like, like if I watch too much TV, even if it's on a weekend, I like get in a weird haze. Um, so you know, I, I do most of my TV watching weekday evenings. I'll watch like an episode or two of whatever I'm into right now. Um, right now I'm into The Great Pottery Throwdown, which is a lovely reality show by the makers of The Great British Bake Off, where just very nice British people make pottery. <laughs> it's extremely <laughs> soothing. <laughs> It sounds like a wonderful way just to turn your mind off and not worry about other things. And let's focus on the pottery and the importance of this competition. They're all so nice. And they get such lovely feedback. When the host sees a piece of pottery he really loves, he cries. I always love. I love it when people are just connecting to anything. So, yes. Great pottery throwdown. Maybe that will be the one thing your listeners take from this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, we already fixed publishing. That's true. We did do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to take, uh, I want to talk a, a bit about uh, the sorts of projects that you're, you're interested in, but I, I'm, I'm very curious about this query form because uh, I've got it here in front of me. If anybody that goes to the, uh, uh, to goes to the Marshall Lions website, uh, can and hit submit to you. We'll be able to see the same form. So they've got your name, last name, email address, phone number. Phone number is the only thing not required. What's the odds that if I give you my phone number and you love my submission, you're going to call me in the middle of the day without any kind of uh, email or text warning? Absolutely zero. There's really no need for me to even ask for the phone number, but we just always do because my practice when I love something is that usually if I'm reading something and I'm partway through and I love it, I'll email the author when I'm partway through. Not always, but often. And I'll just say like, hey, I'm halfway through this and I'm loving it. Like, while I read the rest, can you let me know? I would just love to hear about what else you have in the works. Like, are you working on something? I just would love to know the scope of your other projects. Um, and then I have that in mind as I finish the manuscript. And then once I've finished and I know I liked it, I will email. Um, I, I mean, who just cold calls anyone? I feel like that's not a thing in the year 2022. I mean, I guess I, maybe I some agents do. I know it does happen. It's, it, to me, it's a horror story. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't want that. Like, I would want to be able to prepare and know that I was like sitting somewhere quiet. 
So I will, um, I will email and say, you know, I loved your book. I would love to talk with you. And then I'll also ask, you know, is this phone number from your query the best number to reach you? So if you did not have a phone number in the query, I would ask later if I was interested anyway. So not the end of the world if you forget it. Why, uh, why would you email midway through reading um, as opposed to waiting until you've read the whole thing and you know it doesn't suddenly suck at the end? <laughs> um, usually because if I get about two thirds of the way through and I'm loving it, uh, I know I want it. Like anything that falls apart in the last third, I can fix. I'm a really good like developmental editor. I can help with plot. Like, and I just, you know, I, I think part of it is I just get so excited and I get like very like nervous that the author is gonna somehow like get and take an offer of representation while I'm finishing the last third. So I just want people to know, like, I just want to give people a heads up. Like, as soon as I know that I think I'm, I'm interested, I want to let them know. Okay, so anybody that's received that message from you and immediately come here, which they to, to rewatch because they already watched it before they sent the initial query. Uh, but <laughs> you come back in there, they're enjoying this conversation again. Take that very seriously. You get that email and you say you're you're not completely done, but hey, I'm interested. In what else you've got going on? Yeah, this is uh, what maybe three fourths of the way toward happening. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, I think at that point it would be more the thing that would be more likely to deter me is if I send that email that's like, I'm liking it, tell me what else you're like working on. And if someone had say queried me with a YA, but then they email me back and they say, yeah, absolutely. I'm working on like an adult international espionage thriller and seven picture books, neither of which I represent, then I that would be the thing that I would be more likely to be like, I might not be the person for you. Um, and you, that doesn't mean don't tell me about the international espionage thriller. Like you should tell me because, um, you really do want an agent who represents everything that you want to work on. Um, and it's better to know that upfront, which is part of why I ask. I'm like, uh, I'm very much a career focused agent. So I want to know that the, you know, if the, person queried me with a YA, they might have other YA ideas. They don't have to have other YAs written, but I just kind of want to know, like, are you going to want to keep writing YA? Are you going to want to keep writing other things that I represent? Um, do you have anything up your sleeve? Like, for example, if someone was also, say, an illustrator, I just, I have no capacity to do that. Like, I, no one at our agency represents illustrators. I don't know what makes I, I that uh, I'm making a like big shrug emoji. Um, so <laughs> like so there are some things calling for any uh, illustration submissions at that point then. Yeah, no, I mean, no, because I wouldn't be doing a service to those people. Like if someone wants to represent or if someone wants to write YA and then they're also an illustrator, which there are a few of those people, um, there are great agents who do both of those things, but I'm not one of them why and this is just i'm not an agent thing so i'm, I'm curious why wouldn't it be uh, something worth talking about that you represent the books and then i'll get somebody else to represent just the illustrations 
Um, because you are still one person, like you, you as the creator are still one person. And part of what a good agent is going to do, in my opinion, as you get further in your career is help you think about prioritizing and think about like not burning out and what your time looks like and what your schedule looks like. And like part of my job is to be up at, you know, the, the, the looking down 3000 feet view and say like, okay, you have this and this, and like, this is in development and you want to do this. And how do we, how do we make a plan for the next two years, the next three years, the next five years. And even if you're, you know, on one hand, you're doing illustration and on the other hand, you're doing novels, you're still doing them both. So I think you need an agent who can like, look at all of that with you and say, okay, how, how many projects can you take on in different genres? What do we want to prioritize? How do we make sure that you have sustainable careers in both areas? Um, I think it might work if you had two agents at the same agency working with different things, if they already know each other and then the three of you could get on a call. Um, but for me, it would be very hard to do that coordination with like, me and the author and then someone else from another agency that I don't know that has has their own priorities about like what you focus on because you know they're only commissioning off of that stuff and I'm only commissioning off of this stuff so of course we would each want you to focus on the thing that is in our territory yeah don't worry about Patricia's stuff do mine <laughs> <laughs> right exactly <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> Um, so look at uh, still at this this form for through query manager. We're gonna put your we're gonna put our biography in there, our website, our blog address, our Twitter handle. Um, are you even gonna look at any of that stuff before you've looked at our pitch and or our manuscript pages? Um, no, I mean I usually I look at the pitch first and I just make sure, like, you know, am I excited about this story idea? Because that's that's the core thing, you know, and that's going to be the core thing for me. And then it's going to be the core thing for an editor. And then it's going to be the core thing for the editor selling it to their team. And then the, you know, the salespeople selling it to booksellers and booksellers selling it to customers. Like it's got to be an interesting premise. Um, if I'm interested in that, I usually will go look at the bio and just see like, does this person, um, you know, who is this person? Like, do they have other publishing experience? Have they, I represent a lot of poets. So like, have they published poetry? Have they published in literary journals? None of that is a necessity, but like if I've, if my interest has been piqued by the pitch, then I just am curious and want to know. Um, and then regardless of what the bio says, like if the bio is never make or break, um, I will flip back and read the pages. And the pages are really like, if you've ended up in that maybe pile, you've ended up in the maybe pile probably because I liked your pitch, but I don't have time to read your pages yet. So you get in the maybe pile on the pitch. And then when I have time to sit down with pages, I read the pages. Um, if I don't think this concept is sellable on the pitch or it's not for me, it's not a genre I represent, it's not something I think editors are looking for, I might not even make it to the pages, honestly. There needs to be like a, a certain amount of interest for me to get to those pages. Gotcha. So it could be the world's most incredible writing and you'll never know about it if that pitch doesn't pique your interest early. Yeah, because also like 
I mean, sometimes the pitch is confusing, but I think there's something interesting there. That's another maybe pile situation where I'm like, I don't think this pitch is quite working, but I, I could be intrigued, you know, like there's something about the voice in the pitch or, you know, the, there's something about the premise that is like piquing my interest. So it doesn't have, it's not that it has to be a perfect pitch. Um, but if, if I'm not seeing something in the pitch that makes me think like, I could see an editor getting excited about this. I could see a reader getting excited about this. It could be the best, most beautiful writing. And it's not, it's not going to sell anyway. So, you know, I, I would just rather, um, like hopefully the writer comes back to me maybe with something that's a little more saleable, um, in the future. I mean, a, a no for me on the, on queries is definitely just a no for that project. So I'm always happy to hear from, from people later, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think that that's really a bummer for authors to hear because there are a lot of really, really beautiful writers who spend a lot of time working on their craft. But I mean, once you get into the publishing pipeline, you have to have something that like has, has, a, has something sparkly enough just about the concept that is going to make people choose to pick that up instead of playing video games or watching the Great Pottery Throwdown or something. And that's what your pitch needs to convey. Like, I need to see a glimpse of something sparkly or something that I feel like maybe there's something sparkly, something like that. And it has to be so, so apparent that right there in that pitch, you can find it so you know you can sell it to others. Yep. My colleagues, um, both of the owners of our agency, Kevin Lyon and Jill Marshall, don't even ask for pages at the query stage. Um, it, I, I was like the innovator at my agency in asking for pages at the query stage. Um, but for them, like, you know, they're, they're both brilliant and they're very experienced saleswomen. And their thing is like, if I don't see it in the pitch, an editor is not going to see it. Like, it, you know, come back with another project, basically. Gotcha. Uh, and then should, right, I mean, how many queries are you getting on a daily basis, weekly basis, would you say? Uh, well, I'm a, I have query manager now, so I know. Oh, um, yeah. Query manager breaks it out monthly. So monthly, I get between 300 and 500, depending on um, the month, actually. So that's like, what, like 10 to 17 a day or something, math, something. Um, <laughs> a couple of English majors, we're going to be here all day. Right. It sort of ebbs and flows. Like I was closed for a long time because COVID was just wiping me out. So I was closed for like over a year during COVID. And then when I opened, I got like, you know, 600 queries in a month. Um, I like, I also got a lot in January because I think a lot of people are querying New Year's resolution. I'm going to query my book. Um, so that was the other biggest month. And then like, I didn't get as many in December. Um, I don't know, maybe people are told not to query in December. Well, what I just heard is that's a gold mine. That's, that's, that's when you should be sending your queries. 
I mean, to me, I don't, because I'm really like on top of this right now, again, right now, possible future listeners. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me because like, I'm not getting backed up one way or the other. I think that the hazard potentially of December is you might like if you send your query and then you get a quick offer, I definitely have um, had people email me and let they know let me know they have an offer from another agent on like December 15th. And I'm like, I wish you the best, but two weeks from December 15th is Christmas and I'm like going home to Michigan and I, you know, I just can't drop everything and read right now. So I think that that's the hazard of querying during the holidays. It's not the query, but it's that if you get an offer of representation during the holidays, you might have some agents step aside just because the timing doesn't work. But I have this beautiful image in my head of you beside a Christmas tree in Aurora's final with some eggnog in my manuscript. Oh. I mean, that's happened. I did sign someone in December this past year, but... <laughs> well, that dream did come true for somebody else. <laughs> exactly. So uh, in January, it sounds like maybe that would be a good time to just kind of ignore your inbox because that, that's that's the posers, right? Those are all the people that they're not committed. They're not going to keep going all year. They're doing it right right here and now. For yeah, their- I mean, I'm actually genuinely considering closing in January this year, not because um, not because I feel behind on queries, but just because I did get a lot of those queries in January. And there you can tell when it's someone who, you know, hasn't researched how to write a query, doesn't have like, you know, the people who are listening to your podcast are not these people. Um, I, people on earth who are listening to us, they're gonna. <laughs> yeah, no, I can tell. I mean, when, when people listen to podcasts like this or like read the seven question stuff on your blog, like I can always tell when someone has been doing their research about publishing, about the industry. Um, And I can also tell when someone just like, you know, never even Googled how to write a query letter and then like sent me something on January 4th because they put publish a book on their New Year's resolutions. They copied every other agent that they found on a on a website. Recommended. <laughs> well, they can't do that with Query Manager now, which is like one of the other pluses of being on Query Manager. Although I, when I took email queries, I did get some of those. It was just you know, a hundred of us, not even BCC'd, just CC'd. We're just all in a in the big header, a hundred agent emails. Well, at least you know who the competition is. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> Which is nobody, because who's going to fall for that? But <laughs> Well, I mean, there's always like at least one agent on those in my experience who, I don't know if they're not paying attention or what, but like reply alls their rejection on that query. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, okay. Hopefully there's a reason and then saves the time for everybody else. Right. <laughs> Was uh, Lindsay uh, Eager was on here uh, not long ago? Checked the back catalog of Steam audience, and she worked as an assistant for Mary Cole and, and was going through the inbox. And she said that that was one of the things that most affirmed her about her own ability. Uh, was because prior to that, she assumed that the query was packed with amazing queries, and now she knows that it's really only about fifteen to twenty percent that are even competent enough to be worth considering. Does that yeah. does that ring true to you? Yeah, I mean. 
there are there are like a lot of them that are just didn't didn't even again google how to write a query and then there are always a lot of queries that aren't in a genre i represent like even now that in, in query manager i only allow you to click a certain number of genres to to submit your book i still get people who you know are submitting an adult fantasy to me which is a genre i don't represent and they've just called it something else in that little genre box check it's like i'm gonna figure out it's an adult fantasy <laughs> like <laughs> you're not flying under the radar um so there's a lot of that and then there's also like you know there are there are queries that are good, but it's too close to something that a client of mine is working on or queries that are good. But, you know, like, for example, I usually don't like to work on books that involve like sexual assault. So there are some, I get some really good queries that are about that topic, but it's just not for me. So you might, you know, there are like all sorts of reasons besides um, your query is not good that you might get a rejection from an agent, but yes, there also are a lot of queries that are just in that kind of you didn't try category. I have to say about Lindsay Eager as well. Um, she co-does a podcast with my client, Haley Chewins, called The Story of a Book, I think it's called, um, where they interview authors about the journeys of one of their books they like pick a book and then do a, an interview on that book concept to publication which is very cool well that that part's already been edited out of the show i don't want the steamed audience to know that <gasps> <it. Yes. laughs> <laughs> in fact Haley chewins uh was a was a guest on episode 90 amazing author uh and she uh gave us a whole testimonial about you specifically she's saying your praise is oh. out so go back and check that out esteemed audience I mean, definitely go back and check that out, esteemed audiences. It sounds like it makes me look great. And then if there's time and you've listened to every episode of my podcast, check out her podcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think we've uh, about exhausted the wonders of query management. I do want to ask, has it ever happened just for all the hopefuls out there that someone sent you something that wasn't what you explicitly are looking for, wasn't what you represent, and they convinced you through their pitch to at least take a look, if not sign them? Um, a fantasy out there that could be just so amazing. They're like, well, I don't represent this, but this one time, this, this is the <laughs> most amazing adult fantasy ever. I mean, not not something that it's like I specifically don't represent that and then someone has convinced me there have definitely been things that I didn't say like I didn't know I was looking for and they grabbed my attention um but they've always been within the genres that I represent because the thing is that part of the reason why you want an agent that does represent your genre is that that's where I have connections to editors so you know I represent YA in middle grade. The children's editors know me. When my pitches come into their inbox, they're like, oh, Patricia, I don't, I don't know the editors who are buying adult sci-fi. So I'm gonna get you not as far in that genre as an agent who knows those editors. And I just never wanna be in a position where I feel like I am doing an author a disservice. Gotcha. Um, so how, I mean, you're past your five years, you're making a living off of your work as an agent. How actively are you seeking clients at this point? I am definitely looking. Um, I, you know, I said I was closed for a while. Um, 
And usually if I'm not actually open to finding new people, I close because I don't think it's really fair for authors to be sending in, spending their time sending in queries if I'm genuinely not open to, to signing new clients. Um, I just signed a new client who came in through the query manager slash two weeks ago. Um, just like she'd never been published before, YA author. Um, so yeah, I'm looking, I, I do have a relatively small list. Um, I have about 25 clients and I look to add, I would say maybe like no more than five people a year because I'm trying to keep my list small. Some years I only sign one. Um, usually it's like two, two, three. Um, so I am looking for the right person. I'm like not looking for a million of the right person, <laughs> you know, like I think that, um, I would say I, I I'm, I'm mid-career, so I'm less actively building than someone who's like two years in and still has a wide open list. And I'm more actively building than someone, you know, like my bosses who's 15 years in and has a very full list. I, I'm in the middle looking, but looking selectively. But unlike the person who's two years in and actively looking for what they can find, you've got more experience, you've got better relationships within houses, and you, you've been at this for a minute. You know where to, to match an author with a, with a good deal, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is always my, like, pitch to authors when I do offer them representation is, you know, I think it, I think I'm at a good point for, for authors where I have time to work very closely with them and I'm extremely hands-on and, you know, I'm very editorial. I'm really involved, really fast responder. Um, but also, you know, nobody, I'm not at that stage where you're like trying to make the first pancake, you know, you know, the thing about like, sometimes when you're making pancakes and you do the first one on the griddle and it's like a little weird because it, it, it isn't like quite warmed up yet. Sometimes I think like if you're, that's my hesitation with a brand new agent, like if they, who hasn't sold anything, like you don't want to be the, that agent's first pancake. Does that make sense? That was a very convoluted <laughs> metaphor. I've not heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> that 100% makes sense. All right. Um, so, uh, I'm, now I'm just going to be thinking about I totally distracted you with the pancakes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So we we get past these incredible odds. Um, but you know what? One thing I wanted to go back and then we'll get, get to the stage. I want to talk a little bit about going out on submission. But you mentioned after you look at the pitch, before you look at the pages, you look at the biography. What are you looking to see in that biography that's going to make a difference? I don't even know how much it makes a difference. But I just... I'm just curious and I like to know. Um, I like it if someone is like, just seems like they are treating this like a professional thing. So if you are a member of SCBWI, I like to know that. If you've published in literary journals or poetry, I like to know that. If, um, if there's something about your 
background that's relevant to the book. I like to know that. Um, I actually, I don't represent her anymore, but I still um, highly recommend her. Kelly Ford, who is an adult thriller writer. Um, she's one that when I was very early in my career, she wrote kind of like a winter's bone type adult thriller. Um, I don't represent those anymore. That's why I don't represent her anymore. Please don't send me your winter's bone adult thrillers. Although I do love the movie winter's bone. Um, but, but the pitch sounded like it was maybe going to be a little cliche. And then I read her bio and she was like, I grew up, you know, in, she grew up like in the foothills of Arkansas or whatever. She had a, a direct relevant experience um, to the setting of this book. And I was like, oh, well, actually, maybe it's not going to be cliche because maybe she's bringing something to it that um, that is a little bit more authentic or a little bit different. And then I, I that encouraged me to request it. And I did love it. She really was bringing something new. That book is called Cotton Mouths. It did come out um, she has a new book coming out this year called, I think like real bad things. Maybe I don't represent it, but, um, that kind of thing, like there might be something in the bio that gives me some context for why you wrote it or, um, what you might be bringing to it that might be helpful, but it's not make or break. I mean, I've definitely signed authors where the bio was just like, I'm a debut author. I live in this place. I have three cats. Great. My mom says my book is amazing. Sure. <laughs> Maybe not that. <laughs> That's actually a red flag. People do say that. Or it's usually my kids or my grandkids think my book is amazing. Um, Any credence if it's by students? No, because your students know you. They like you. <laughs> I, I represent several teachers. Um, I think especially in middle grade, quite a few of my clients are middle school teachers or fifth grade teachers. Um, but like their own students' opinions about their book are, are colored by the fact that they love them. Like it's beloved Mrs. So-and-so. Um, so it's just a little bit different. Um, and I don't think that any of my middle school teacher clients put in their bios that their clients love their book. They did put that they were teachers, which I always like to see, but they didn't add that like, and I've, I've used my students as a crowdsourced focus group <laughs> to see if this is good. Your book is terrible. I hope I pass your class. I'm gonna... <laughs> right. <laughs> what, uh, what are some other red flags that uh, might stand out that authors can possibly avoid? Or do we want to, do we want to say if that's a useful sorting mechanism? Sure. I mean, again, like, I just think people who are listening to your podcast and reading your site are not going to make those mistakes. Um, the biggest one that really, really just irks me is um, people who put other books down in an attempt to say how special their book is. Um, like, I wrote this book because there are no strong female heroines in YA, just like a bunch of dumb Twilight heroines. And so my book is needed. And I'm, I'm like, first of all, you're going to be a terrible member of the YA community if you think that all other YA is bad. You know, that's, that's not a good way to make friends and influence people. 
Second, like you're wrong about the scope of contemporary YA. There are tons of strong female heroines and that just tells me you're not reading. And third, like if the best, if the best thing you can think of to make your book sparkle is that it's better than someone else's book, it probably isn't standing too strongly on concept on its own. That's my biggest red flag. Uh, what about I've published such and such other book. It didn't do so well as the sales, but I'm hoping we could turn it around this time. Does that have any bearing either way? You don't need to say that. I do want to know if you published something else. I think that is maybe a spot. I think it's maybe a checkbox in my form. Have, are you previously published? Um, but you don't need to like give me a pitch for how to strategize your career because like if I'm interested in the book, I'll have my own thoughts on that. You know, I will go look. If you tell me you're previously published, I will go look on Goodreads and I will go look on Amazon and I will see how many reviews your book has. And that gives me like a general rule of thumb of like, okay, did this book sort of get in a lot of people's hands or not? Um, but, you know, I, I know how to, I know how to think about rebooting someone's career if that's what they need. And like, let me get there. I don't think you should lead with like, my career needs a reboot. Like, let me do my own research and then figure out where I think you are. And then if I have a vision for like, usually the, the thing with that is, do I think that this book is different enough? Um, because like, if you published say, um, three, like, I'm trying to pick a, pick a genre none of my clients work in so that it doesn't sound like I'm talking about someone. If you published three middle grade sci-fis and none of them hit, like, you know, um, then you're querying me with a middle grade sci-fi that sounds kind of in the same vein. Maybe they're all funny. Um, the thing that an editor is going to say to me is, well, you know, the other publisher couldn't do anything with these three. So what, or what is our sales team going to do with this one? You know, it's the same thing. However, like, let's say you published three middle grade sci-fis that didn't really hit, but now you're querying me with a middle grade contemporary or a YA sci-fi even. Um, then I can make a case to an editor. Like, well, yeah, the middle grade sci-fis didn't work, but your sales team can go out with this middle grade contemporary and present it as like totally fresh new direction for so-and-so. Um, and that has a lot more possibility. Or is it ever just like pen name time? It can be pen name time. Um, but again, it's usually for me, pen name time if it's, if it's the same thing. So like, yeah, you still really want to publish in um, genres my, none of my clients represent. You still, you still really want to publish in like women's fiction set in Rome and your first two didn't do well, but you really, really, that's the only thing you're interested in. You're only interested in women's fiction set in Rome. Yeah, then maybe it's pen name time. Um, but usually if it's a different genre or a different category, you can keep your name, in my opinion and experience. Gotcha. Uh, let's see, I'm watching our time. Where does, where does it go? 
<laughs> it just flies away. He's having so much fun and solving publishing. So, you know. <laughs> that, that took a fair amount of time right there, knocking that out. Um, well, a couple of questions that I, I definitely want to make sure that we get to, because it's only, it's only fair since I uh, make it my business to ask um, every agent or professional that comes on the show about diversity in publishing. Um, as we know, uh, historically, uh, publishing could have done better when it, when it comes to representing um, multiple voices and, and being less of a monolith. Uh, we had a whole We Need Diverse movement mm-hmm. um, or We Need Diverse Books movement. We've seen some improvements. Where do you think publishing is in terms of, uh, where do you think we're at in terms of diversifying? What are you doing to increase diversity in publishing? And what is Marshall Lyons doing to increase diversity? Yeah, those are such good questions. Um, So where do I think we are? First of all, I think that we're doing better. There's still a long way to go. Um, I'm sure that's probably what everybody says, right? Like, I think that um, there is definitely, I am genuinely seeing more of an interest, especially on the children's side of buying books by diverse authors. Um, uh, Adult is not doing quite as well, but it's catching up. Um, I think that where the real, there's like a real pipeline problem, um, to get back to our, why do you have to move to New York conversation? Um, I'm really discouraged by the amount of diverse editors who are leaving the industry altogether. Um, and they're all like younger assistant editors beginning their careers. Um, I think that the publishing houses have made a concerted effort to get more diverse people in as like interns and assistants. And then the path to promote them from what I'm seeing, not, not doing so well. Um, in terms of what I'm doing, I mean, most of my client list is either BIPOC, queer or disabled, I'd say two thirds of my list. Um, so that's definitely a focus for me and has been from the very beginning I think that that's getting those voices onto shelves is a big part of why I feel passionate about my job and what I'm like, what I'm doing here. I should follow that up with, um, I always want to ask about uh, your agency. So why is Marshall Lines, why is that the best agency for all the, um, all the writers out there watching or listening to us to submit their queries to? What, 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 what makes you stand out from the crowd? Um, you know, I think that we are a great career agency. Um, there are some agencies that are really like, you know, interested in selling your debut novel for the most amount of money. And then they're like less interested in you if you don't sell huge or if you have a longer build. The approach of my agency has always been, you know, we sign authors because we believe in them. And then we're like all in. Like I... And, you know, no one at the agency is ever going to drop an author for not selling right away or not selling big enough. Um, And uh, the lovely thing about that is I think clients really grow with us. Um, And we have a lot of very big authors. Um, We represent a lot of New York Times bestsellers, um, a lot of USA Today bestsellers. We represent award winners. But many of them have been, you know, with the agency for over a decade, you know, and have gotten a little bigger with every book. Um, And I think our author care is phenomenal. I think that we really prioritize communication. We're very fast. 
Um, and that's like a, a really mandate coming down from the top of the agency. Like we are not to leave clients languishing um, to wait on things. And I think that that's great because the industry as a whole isn't always as great about that. Um, and I just like, I mean, I think we're, we're the perfect balance between personal attention, um, while also being extremely well connected. Like if you look at our sales on publishers marketplace, we're regularly in the top five highest selling agencies, even though there aren't that many agents at our agency, um, people know who we are, but also we're, we're extremely client focused. Like no one's ever going to feel like they're a gear in a machine. I hope. I don't think anyone does. So we're going to hear back fast. You're going to focus on our career. You're going to build us up and you're going to continue to sell because that's what you do. That's what we do. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I've got an impossibly hard question. So before I ask it, I'll ask the fun one. I ask everybody that comes on this show. Uh, Patricia Nelson, have you seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? No and no. I'm sorry to disappoint. I feel like that ends on such a down note. Oh, no, I've got an impossible question that will uh, <laughs> bring us back before we call it a night. I know. Uh, don't leave out Bigfoot or Loch Ness or anything like that. <laughs> um, what I want, uh, the other thing I'd like to ask uh, is because we've seen so many rapid changes to everything, every every aspect of, of, of society in the, in the face of the pandemic, but it does seem like publishing is, is, is certainly my focus, but uh, that's probably because I'm talking to folks on the show all the time. But I know that we had uh, just recently here, it'll be a little bit distant um, by the time this airs, but we had um, some editors leave very publicly on Twitter um, with some complaints about salary, some complaints about not being able to advance, which has to be frustrating for all the agents who've been building relationships with these individual editors that they keep leaving before they're able to, to grow and get in a position to help build. So we've got that going on. We've got the pandemic. We've got shipping delays. We've got boats sinking to the bottom, our books sinking to the bottom of the ocean, all kinds of crazy stuff. What is the state of publishing at this point? And what do you see as the future for publishing? Oh, just like a, a small, a small, tiny question. <laughs> well, we already fixed publishing, so I already... <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, you know, it's like rough out there right now. <laughs> like, I think that the editor thing is a real problem. I brought that up earlier. I don't see the publisher's doing a great job of trying to fix it because frankly, they don't wanna lose their assistants. Like that's the, that's the problem on that front is that instead of just hiring an assistant to do the work of an assistant, publishing works in a way where assistant and associate editors are, are doing the paperwork for two more senior editors while trying to build their own list and making not enough money. Like that, cha that changing, if publishing just like hired administrative assistants who that was their job and then let younger editors grow would make a huge difference. But I just, I don't see them doing that. So that's discouraging, frankly. Um, I think that, I mean, the shipping delay stuff is whatever. Like that um, is annoying 
and also I think it's pretty temporary. Um, publishing can weather that. Uh, what was what what else was on your list of doom? Oh, just I don't know. Well, <laughs> your twenty twenty bingo card, all of the uh, the pandemic, because uh, uh, I know the pandemic did change and and put a lot of delays into publishing schedules, um, which has backed up houses. I know that it seems to me that emails are running a little bit slower from editors to agents and and then the writers are having to wait longer to hear back on things is that your experience or is it yeah i mean i think that i think that really the issue there is burnout i think that like a lot of people got burned out during the pandemic with good reason and um yeah submission times are slower but editors are still buying that feels like the natural ebb and flow of the market to me. Um, I think that that will self-correct. I'm not sort of permanently concerned about that. I do, I mean, the bigger pandemic concerns, which I'm sure other people have talked to you about, are these these payout schedules and the other ways that like uh, publishers are just, you know, finding ways to not treat authors super well, which is facilitated in part by the never ending mergers that mean there are less and less publishers to compete with each other. Um, and that is also concerning. <laughs> That's concerning too. Um, I don't, I, I mean, for me, I just feel like People are always going to want to read books. Um, and what I can do, like I, I can't make publishers hire administrative assistants. And I, I will keep pushing on like payout schedules, just like every other agent and hope that they change them back. But I can't like personally stop Penguin Random House from merging with Simon and Schuster. So I just continue to do the best by my clients and put you know do do my best to put books on shelves that i believe in and i think need to be there and like i think that's what we're all doing and hopefully i don't know we will still all be here in <laughs> 10 years I don't know. I don't know. I like, I sound very bleak about it, but I don't feel bleak. I just kind of feel like we, we've just got to keep powering through and pushing where we can and trying to create opportunities where we can. And then we'll see. Well, the good news is publishing is going to listen to our conversation. They go, oh, of course. Well, yes. The answer <laughs> is the Midwest. Oh, <laughs> oh, next problem. Patricia Nelson, this has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure and just a delight. Uh, I'm going to ask one last question and we'll call it a night and I'm going to, we'll end on a more positive note. And that is if there was one bit of advice that you could, or as many bits of advice as you want, whatever. Um, but uh, if there was anything that you would want to impart to all the authors who are watching or listening to us right now that might make easier their path and something they can do personally, regardless of what's going on in publishing, to improve their career and improve where they're going to get to, what would you, what would you say to them? Uh, I mean, all that's in your control really is your craft, right? 
And my favorite craft book is Story Genius by Lisa Crone. Um, so that's that's a very concrete recommendation. That book does such a good job of focusing on tying plot to character and um, thinking about like character motivation and desire as a plot engine. And I think that reading books like that and other books um, and just, you know, getting your work as, as good as possible. Like I do genuinely believe that good work will find a home. Sometimes it takes a long time. Um, but I think that sometimes authors can get really caught up in like learning about publishing and wanting to publish and like how to write a good query letter and how to polish your first 10 pages and, you know, researching agents and knowing the names of all their pets or whatever, when what might be more fruitful to work on is just, you know, increasingly upping your game in terms of writing better and, and better books and thinking about like pairing those better and better books with reading in the market and um, being aware of like what makes you pick books up off the shelves so that you can pair that stellar writing you're going to have from reading all of those craft books with a really sparkly premise um, that will grab people's attention. But if I send you a pitch that lists all the names of your pets, you're going to be a little bit impressed though, right? I'm going to be creeped out. Don't do that. <laughs> Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? I mostly exist on Twitter, although we are talking on the day that Elon Musk bought Twitter. So who knows what will happen with that. Um, but for now, I am on Twitter at Patricia Nels. Um, Patricia and then N-E-L-S. Uh, I technically have an Instagram, but I don't use it. So, you know, don't really bother to try to find me there. Twitter is your best bet. Our agency website is marshalllionliteraryagency.com. Um, and I'm also just like all over the internet. Like I have done a ton of interviews and, um, you know, I think you're my first podcast, but I've done a lot of written interviews. So if you Google me, you will find out everything you possibly want to know except the name of my pets. So it's going to be even more impressive when I mention <laughs> my query. <laughs> I'm scared. Esteemed <laughs> audience, as ever, uh, for more wonderful interviews with literary agents like Patricia Nelson and uh, for authors like Haley Schuland and Lindsay Eager, who apparently also have an awesome podcast you can check out, head to middlegradeninja.com download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.